Broadcasting from the Third Coast and recorded live at Tripod South Studios, this is The Hango Show. One, two, one, two. Do it again. One, two, the Suburban Wizard on The Hango Show. Right that's good right there. Thank you so much. All right. The, the Bluetooth setting in this board has got like four different options, like for phone call, video call, music, whatnot. I just want to make sure I have uh, it on the optimal one. Gotcha. I'm, I'm glad that you uh, broke out the Hume Sheik for tonight. Broke out the uh, uh, bathrobe. Uh, man, the dude had it right. Smoke weed, you know, drink a little bit, wear a bathrobe. That's it. I think uh, yeah, no. any, any wizard worth their weight in salt is going to wear a robe. Sure, sure. <laughs> no, uh, I once I once I get out of my shower from work at Addison, come over. I'll, this is where I record the podcast. In I think you wore the I'm, robe when I when I came up for the podcast. Also, probably, probably. I might I might have had a shirt on underneath <laughs> it. <laughs> well, it would not have offended me if you did. Like I can't even remember. So you may not have. I don't know, and I wouldn't have mind either way because a man's home's his castle. He can dress however the fuck he wants. Yep. Yep, totally agree. Uh, no, I, I, when I get home from work, man, like it's straight into the evening attire. The, the you know the the uh, the pajamas, pretty much. If I don't have anything else, I'm doing. Gotcha. So, uh, hey everybody, welcome to the Hango Show. And this week, I have a super special guest. Uh, it's a, a man who's become um, a, a pretty good friend over the last uh, over the last year for sure. We had. That's right. We had spoken intermittently through Addison, who was, I guess, our, our go-between, our fixer, um, for for about three or four years. Uh, tonight, I have the one, the only, uh, the suburban wizard, the uh, the kitchen guru, Mister Matt Hume. How mm-hmm. you doing, Matt? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, I had to stay a little bit later than I want to at work tonight, but that's fine. We're here. We're doing it. And uh, I'm happy to be on the Hango Show because, uh, man, like it, it's kind of surreal. Kind of you and I, Addison, kind of touched on this a little bit, but on when he was on the program. But uh, to to have a thing that you're doing just for you and your buddy, and other people get into it, and then all of a sudden now they're doing it with with just them and their buddies. You know, uh, it's kind of a nice feeling. Actually, before I left work today, I was like. I'm trying to get out of here as quick as I can because uh, I'm going to be on a be a guest on a podcast tonight, and people are like, "Whoa, really? Wow, you be a guest on a podcast?" You know? Did you just say, even though they only have my own assholes, I've had one my own for the last six to eight years. <laughs> they know that, but I I kind of played it up like, "Yeah, it's a really cool podcast. It's really important." You know, <laughs> asking the big questions. Uh, yeah. like how many times should you tap an egg before you, before you break it? Uh, as many, as many as it takes. <laughs> as many as it takes. Oh man. No, it's, it's really a, it's really nice to have you on here. Uh, it's, it's a joy. Uh, we discussed many times. One of us will bring up something from our childhood or our teenage years or our young adult years. And the other one will be like, man, me too. Same way. You know, it's, it's kind mm-hmm. of weird how, you know, Two guys who you know grew up six, seven hundred miles apart have so much in common in two different regions of the country. Yeah. You know, really, the only yeah. thing we have in common are being, you know, 
white guys in America, you know, but you know, you being from the Midwest, yeah. me being from the super deep South, you know, um, I guess there is some over overlay there somewhat, uh, just some different cultural differences probably in different like, like cultural differences though, different dialect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they, they, they said that America has no culture. I mean, that, that's just, that just goes to show me that no, there is a culture that, you, you know, you have your culture and I have my culture and we have tons of things that overlap and very small things or you know, a few things that don't, which make us unique. But there is a, there's still a culture there that, uh, that ties me to you. Right. You know? Um, and not just because we're, we're two white guys, you know, who are in the early stages of middle age. Right. <laughs> right. They're, they're, they're black people who from this part of the country who go through the same exact experience that I did, you know, not exact, but very much Pretty similar. Close, right? Same thing, same thing, uh, in your neck of the woods. So, yeah, I think that's what, you know, uh, we talk about differences between, between races and cultures and whatnot in America. But uh, even when Mesa was on, we we're talking about redlining and things of that nature. Well, in, in the deep South, the the poor whites and the poor blacks were, there's not a whole lot of difference between us. I mean, there's some, no. there's some slight, like you said, slight, slight cultural differences, the way we might cook or go to church or, or whatnot. But, you know, in the South, when you're poor, you're poor. That's just the way it, yeah. the way it was. Um, yeah. So yeah, For instance, I put sugar in my cornbread, which is a affront to all things holy. But to me, it's 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 I'm I'm not trying to eat a, a steel wool pad. I want you know. Well, if I want if I want cake, I'll order a cake. <laughs> <laughs> Are you familiar with the Christian comedian Mark Lowry? Unfortunately, yes. Okay, <laughs> he has this bit that he did when I grew up. Like he had an act of his when I was a kid and uh, I can't remember the name of it but it was, looked like it was, I think it was purple color when I was like 10, 11 years old, 12 years old he had a bit in there, he's like and don't put sugar in the cornbread no you don't, sugar in the cornbread is cake, it is. that is not of God put the sugar in the tea that's where it goes exactly Man, 25 years later I still remember that bit <laughs> that, was the first, that was the first comedian I was into gotcha. back in the day um well, let's go back then. Let's let's start from from the beginning uh, with with Matt Hume. I uh, grew up in St. Charles, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. or in the vicinity, I guess. Uh, yeah. So I was born in California, um, in the poor part of California, Riverside, California, which is basically the Mexican ghetto. Of LA, right, and I'm, we moved from there when I was four. After my dad passed away, and I remember being like the only white kid, the only white boy in the apartment complex we lived in. Mm. Um, my dad worked construction; like we were, you know, my mom didn't have a job; she was raising kids. Four, um, you know, and uh, yeah, he passed away. Um, he was uh, well. I've heard. Um, stories from my mom about him and they never paid him in a super good light. I have since reached out to my uncles and I kind of have a little bit more of a whole, uh, a whole story view. Of it. Yeah. 
he was a guy who just he he couldn't say no to people. Mm. You know what I mean? Anybody who was like, "Hey, let's do this. Hey, let's do that," and uh, yeah, got himself into some bad uh, bad news and was in a, a motorcycle accident while in the influence of a lot of different things. Mm. So uh, he passed away, and we ended up moving to St. Charles, Missouri, where my grandparents live, and uh, I've lived here ever since. Gotcha. Uh, you've got a pretty big family. Am I correct? Oh yeah. Far siblings ago. Yeah. That's what I asked Addison. I thought, I thought that both of y'all had pretty, uh, had quite a, quite a few siblings, but I found out they only had three other siblings besides himself. Um, yeah, but you have a pretty, pretty extended family or or not even extended family, a pretty big close family. I'm the second oldest of nine. Gotcha. One of us is adopted quote, air quotes adopted. Um, yeah. Uh, the youngest or the oldest is 38. I'm 37. And then the youngest is 23, 24. Okay. Something like that. So yeah, grew up a huge family. Um, Southern Baptist to the core. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, seriously, like, um, Southern Baptist, uh, hymnal, uh, man, you could, you could, you could point to a random, random page say the title and I, I can probably sing the song for you, you know? Um, yeah. And grew up homeschooled, which is an, a unique, um, unique thing to be, but man, it gave me a lot of perspective, not as a kid or growing up, but as an adult being able to kind of look back at a lot of the cultural things that people were involved in, um, as kids, I wasn't. I don't know. I feel like I missed out on a lot of the, uh, the facts. a lot of the, a lot of the frivolous brainwashing that happened. <laughs> to kids. Why didn't I get brainwashed also? Damn it. You know? Yeah. But, but, but there's, 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 okay. So I have this theory about, um, about growing up and that we used to, as a culture, as cultures, have multi-generational households. Right. Right? Grandparents, parents, children. Um, kind of the and you, model still today. Like, even like in Italy and Spain, they have multicultural households. Yeah. Right. And so what you do is you, you learn how to communicate and relate to people who are 60 years older than you and your younger siblings and your parents and the family next door that also has a 70-year-old grandma and kids your age. And, but you learn how to relate to a, a vast group of, of ages where in when you're, you know, not to say everybody who's goes to public school hasn't, doesn't have this, but when you go to public school, you spend eight hours a day with 30 kids who are exactly your age and maturity level and one adult to temper it. Right. You know? And I think that, uh, you know, they, they always talk about homeschoolers not being, um, so properly socialized mm. or acclimated, I, w- I would say I would say yeah, we're not really acclimated to what everyone else is doing. Because uh, when I got out, when I got my first job, it was kind of a uh, at sixteen. Got my first job, it was um, kind of a wake up. I was like, wow, uh, I am. There's a lot of things that that they're referring to. I have no idea what they are. Mm. You know, um, it felt like everybody else was on in a bunch of inside jokes. I had no, right. I, I couldn't relate. You know? Um, so 
so that was a little bit of a learning curve, but the ability to, to relate to people um, on uh, not just people in my peer group, but a bunch of different peers and a bunch of different peer groups. Um, yeah, I think it was good. And, but it also, for me, being homeschooled, and this isn't like this for everybody. Some people need the structure of a classroom, mm-hmm. you know, and the curriculum, okay, I, I do step one, step two, step three, and then I'm done. For me, it was like, I, okay, step one, cool. Why am I doing step two? Because I already, I've, I'm, I already know what step three is, and I've already got it, so I, I don't need to do step two. So for me, it was um, learning my own pace and kind of whatever I was super passionate and into. You were streamlining your education. Yeah, as a 10, 11, 12-year-old, you know, hey, you know, my mom, when I was 14, got me this course on classic Greek philosophy, and it was a college-level course, Mm. and it wasn't anything that um, was above me or beneath me. It was just, I I was really into being argumentative. (laughs) Some things never change. (laughs) Exactly. My Sunday school teachers, no, for real, my Sunday school teachers were like, he kind of wants to debate with everybody um, and it's kind of like, well, you know, constantly interrupting to be like, well, that doesn't make sense. And so my mom was like, well, okay, so he needs to burn all, all this, all this argumentative energy. So let's give him a, a course in, you know, classic Greek rhetoric and, and, and logic and how to make arguments properly. And it was, it was great for me. You know, I spent six months just blowing through, two different textbooks because, uh, you know, all I wanted to do was know how to win (laughs) arguments and be right. Well, I I think that's something, um, I don't know, going back to the public school thing, a lot of time it's a lot of, not all the time, a lot of times it's, I'm doing it this way because the teacher told me to, this is the way it was taught to me. Uh, and, your mom left you to your own devices with Greek philosophy. So you, you were learning, you were literally learning from the greats. You were learning from yeah. Plato, from Aristotle, you know, and, and you were, mm-hmm. so I, I see the upshot of that from, from homeschooling. You're able to focus on something yeah. that you're super, super interested in, instead of yeah. being bored in a classroom. Um, now it did. It did handicap me when I got to college. Mm. When I finally, you know, did all my high school courses and I got to college and I was actually in a structured classroom for the first time. My first semester in college was terrible. I did terribly. Um, I just wasn't ready for the, the classroom experience or the structure for being, okay, no, this has to be in at this time. And, oh, you can't just, you know, not do something because it doesn't make sense. And so you go to your argument, you go to your mom and say, mom, this doesn't make sense. Why am I doing this? And basically she just acquiesces because she's got a million other things she's doing and doesn't want to deal with your bullshit Mm. when you're, you know, 16 year old who doesn't want to do algebra two. Um, so yeah, so it really didn't, it didn't do me any favors when I finally got to, um, when I finally got to college and honestly, I could have done better in college if I had taken, you know, high school level courses at the local community college for a couple of years before I stepped into like the university mm-hmm. level, I think that would have benefited me um, in my college days. And I, sh- I think I would have done better um, while I was at uh, uh, SCA, 
St. Charles Community College and uh, MOBAP, but still, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They started. Oh, it, it definitely. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it, homeschooling definitely had its its pluses and minuses for me. Um, how I was how I was raised has had its pluses and minuses for me, but I think that's kind of just the average human experience. Yeah, I don't of th- growing up, I don't think any any person um, really gets the optimal quote unquote. Um, uh, uh, rearing, even uh, yeah. kids who are born with a silver spoon up their ass, you know, it's typically not. I mean, the the uber rich, yeah, they'll probably go to, to the finest prep schools. They'll get they'll get their acceptance to Harvard or Yale or Princeton as a legacy. Um, mm-hmm. But they're being raised by a nanny or an au pair. And, you know, they have real no, con- they really have no connection to mom or dad unless it's convenient for mom or dad. I'm not saying that all rich, yeah. not saying they're all rich. I'm not trying to say all rich people don't care for their kids, but typically mom and dad um, are, su- are super busy um, making billions, you know, and leave the raising of mm-hmm. the children. Uh, I was totally cool with being, you know, average white kid from the South. Um, I guess I, I talked about my school before. It, it was a it was a good school. It was it prepared me with everything I needed to live a normal, you know, middle class life. Um, uh, I had a, you know I had a I, I was I was able to have that multi generational um, experience. You know, uh, both sets of my grandparents were, were still, they lived, you know, until I was in my thirties. Um, mm-hmm. so I had plenty of time. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Uh, so I, I've got that experience. I'm in the middle of three kids. I've played the peacemaker a lot of the times, uh, between the oldest yeah. and the youngest. Um, and so I think no one ever has the optimal raising. You kind of get to a point in your life where you say, Oh, shit, I'm 21, 22 now. It's it's up to me, and you gotta mm-hmm. you kind of cut your own way, no matter how you were raised. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah I have somebody's personal, uh, uh, someone, a sibling who uh, every it seems like almost every chance um, that she gets, that they get. <laughs> Hashtag all women. <laughs> But the bringing up and airing of traumas from 20 years ago is still something that happens on a regular basis mm. when there are arguments and fights. And, okay, I can understand that, you know, that's things that you're dealing with or have dealt with or haven't yet dealt with. That's fine. But sooner or later, you have to look or you look around and you say, oh, wow, we're all traumatized. Yeah. All of us. We've, no matter how you how you quantify that trauma, no matter uh, what form it took, uh, it's st- it was still traumatic to you, right? Right. You may not have gone through the level of trauma, the literal hell that some people have gone through growing up, but you still had things you had to get over, and that's part of maturity. That's part of wisdom. That's part of becoming an adult. Is that. Uh, is you work through the things that mm, 
yeah, that that really fucked you up. But okay, you worked through it. You passed it. You deal with your demons. And yeah, yeah, exactly. That and that's what it what it means by uh, by you know fighting your demons and getting past it. So now you are a um, very accomplished chef. What? No, no. Uh, dude, I, I have your food has graced my mouth. You're you're a no. premium chef. Fantastic. I I've, I've done really well. You know, it, it. I kind of after college didn't have anything else really that I could do to make money. That's what I wanted to get into. Um, besides, what, what led you besides, into into the world of the dark, dark world of working in a kitchen. <laughs> so my first job was at a place when I was 16 because, uh, you know, I could do schoolwork around work hours. So, you know, I got full time. I was uh, working full time when I was 16 um, at this little burger shack slash diner in out in like the meth capital of Missouri um, or at least one of the one of the meth strongholds uh, out out where we lived, my family lived, and um, it was this uh, this cool little place. And I kind of, that's kind of where I learned to socialize with quote unquote normal people who weren't homeschooled. Um, but also, I, I kind of took to a, like a fish out of water. I was uh, or fish in water. You know, I was um, uh, I, I was ready to just to work and make money, and that's what I wanted to do. And so, whatever needed to be done, I would do it. Um, Plus, I had the advantage of, uh, you know, I was, I was semi-smart. I had, uh, I was, you know, ability to work with my hands and, and, and figure out how things should work. Here's a problem, figure it out. So it wasn't too long before I was, you know, the, uh, the clothing manager. And then um, at 18, um, the owner of the business was like, hey, I got this other store out in Montgomery City, Missouri, which is, halfway between St. Louis and Columbia and it is just there's you know a town of 2,000 people and uh, so I went there for a year and basically ran this little burger shack and um, after that after a year doing that I was like I hate restaurants I'm never going to do them again <laughs> and I went to go get it. I, I got a job at UPS mm. um, slinging packages at UPS and that soon enough you know then in college, that wasn't paying the bills, so I uh, I got back into restaurants, and it was something that uh, I've always been able to do for the reasons I listed. You know, any the the people you get working fast foods or, or casual fast casual dining in restaurants, it's it's people who are just they're they're going to do the bare minimum. So anybody who wants to go above and beyond, or anybody who's putting any real work or pride into what they're doing, is going to rise to the top real fast. Right. So I was always had a job. I was always making decent money for the industry. Um, you know, I, I was always the guy that, you know, if I wasn't the manager on duty, I was the guy that the managers were looking to, to get it done. And my big mistake was not taking it seriously until I was 30 years old. You know, mm. um, if I had, you know, been like, you know, what, I'm going to do culinary school, you know, it might be a whole, whole different thing um, now, but I didn't get serious about it until I was um, in my 30s, until about six, seven years ago, when I was finally like, there's nothing else that you can do. You have, you know, um, 
no other real ways to make make money so make a living here i mean you could you could learn but it's kind of late in the game so it's either put everything you have into being a chef or uh you know go learn something else so that's what i decided to do and uh, you know i had like two or three jobs that i went through spent six months that never really worked out before um six years ago i landed at Rack House in Cottleville, uh, Missouri, and uh, started working for Chef Philip Day, uh, and uh, was basically his sous chef for five years. And yeah, I haven't really looked back because it wasn't, hey, this is the thing that I know I'm born to do, or this is the thing that uh, I've always wanted to do. It was the thing that um, I can do, and if I'm doing it, I'm going to do it 100%. I'm not going to half-ass it. Right. If I'm showing up and I'm clocking in, then I'm going to do as much as I can to be the best at it while I'm here. Um, and then I'll clock out. And then as soon as it became, you know, I'm sitting at home and I pause my, my show or my video game or whatnot, I'm thinking, okay, how can we do that differently at work? How could we approach this dish differently, you know? How can we think about this flavor with this? And then, you know, now I'm, you know, reading cookbooks and, you know, and then I'm reading cookbooks seriously, right. you know, not just for a recipe, but just to read them out of theory, for inspiration. Instead of, instead of, use them for a theory book instead of a practical book. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when things spark, finally started clicking. Um, yeah. And now it's, you know, I can walk in to a kitchen or to, into my kitchen now and, and see, okay, I have this and this. I need to get rid of or this and this I, I need to do and um, make complete dishes that people love. Mm. <laughs> I have this saying at work, um, falling ass backwards into success. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that. I've done it a couple of times myself, believe me. <laughs> that to me is uh, it best sums up me over the past five or six years. Mm. Well, really over the past decade in, in restaurants and becoming a chef was making mistakes and mistakes and mistakes until I found out how to make the right mistake or make mistakes in the right way. And, and also something I say at work all the time is we'll fix it in post. <laughs> you know, somebody makes a mistake and I say, okay, we'll fix it in post. Which, you know, the Hollywood thing, hey, we'll fix that. We'll, whatever mistake was on film, we'll fix it in post-production. Right, we'll get to it. Whether we'll it's DCI it. or editing, whatever. And it's learning how to incorporate mistakes into what you're doing so that when the plate goes out, the guests, the diner, they don't realize that there ever was a mistake on that plate. Right. Because it's like jazz. You incorporate the off notes into, you know, the other notes and it, it makes sense. It, it may not may not be able to break it mathematically down and say scientifically this is what this dish was but the, the you know you, you take a bite of it and it's wow that was uh that was beautiful you know yeah um i think i think that it happens a lot um in all jobs uh you know even with mine uh you know people get sick people have accidents and sometimes you're you're playing by ear a lot of the times. Um, mm -hmm. 
I've had a lot of times where I had to backtrack because somebody needs something more than the other person did, needed it quicker than the other person did. Um, and I, I think um, that's really where chefs shine when they can say, okay, yeah. that was a fuck up. I know something that can either neutralize that flavor or be able to flip it where it's something good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the difference between a chef and a cook. Yeah. Um, um, I've, I've always described it as uh, a cook knows what he's doing. A chef knows why he's doing it. Mm. You know, a, a cook knows they put A and B together and you get this. Um, a chef knows why, you know. Um, some of my favorite moments are teaching. No, my favorite moments are teaching um, in the kitchen. Uh, one of our, our garmage who works, uh, which is basically just salad station, um, salads and desserts. She's 20 years old. She identifies as a duck. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not joking. I'm not joking, man. She's quacking back there in the kitchen or what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She does a thing. She's like, she does. She's oh, quack, no. quack. When, like that. She, okay. So she's not, you know, uh, a whatever can or a furry or anything, but she's really she's she likes ducks and she likes cooking. Ducks are her um, spirit animal. Yes, gotcha. Yes. And she's uh she just wants to learn, and so today I'm had to break down twenty chickens for a, a whole you know getting whole chickens in right and you know guts and everything inside. Um, basically just plucked and they cut the head off and then send it out, and that's it. Um, and so I'm breaking them down and cleaning them and she's just standing over my shoulder watching me. And so I said, Lacey, go get a cutting board. And she's like, what? Go get a cutting board. Oh man. Put it right there next. Okay. Here's a bird. And I was teaching her how to, you know, I showed her basically three different ways to break down a chicken and some technique. And, uh, and she's, she wants to learn. And so, you know, I'm explaining why you don't make, you make the cut here. And this is, you know, here's, here's the wishbone. Here's the breastbone. Here's the rib cage. Here's how you clean that off. The difference between, oh, no, that's not part of the breast. That's actually the tenderloin, mm. you know. Um, but being able to show and kind of open up a whole new world and a set of skills to somebody who doesn't have that set of skills, you know, and, uh, you know, can she break a chicken down now? Yeah, if she's given enough time. And every chicken she'll break down from here on out, she'll get better at. But uh, now she knows. So now she can take that knowledge and apply it elsewhere. Um, you know, that made her day. You, you take yeah, that time that, that or made her month probably, you know? Yeah. Uh, early, well, earlier in the day too. Like, well, I tried to do that with her. She's kind of my little, um, um, project apprentice. Yeah. Back there. You know, there's just some people that you go in your day to day life and you just realize that, they just need somebody to show that, Hey, I care about you. Mm. And I'm not, uh, I see how you need to be included and how that inclusion makes you feel like you belong. Right. I don't need a 20 year old salad cook to know how to break down a chicken. Right. Chances are I should never fucking do that. But what I need is my 20-year-old salad cook 
just feel like she's a part of that kitchen. Exactly. So yeah, I have her hold the funnel while I'm pouring hot cream into <laughs> rock glasses today to make panna cotta. Do I need her to do that? No, no I don't. But she's a part of it, and you, she's a part of made, what I'm doing. You made her part of the tribe. Yeah, and in yeah, all actuality, that's what that's what any person in a kitchen and working at Walmart in a trucking firm in anything in life, a, a team, a baseball team, a football team. What when you get included in something, especially when you're new, or when you're mm-hmm. when you're low on, on the on the uh, the ladder for somebody yeah. who's higher ups to reach down and take your hand and say, you know, let me show you something. That means the yeah. absolute world. My freshman year of high school, I played football and uh, I was playing defensive end. And one of the juniors was tied in. He had to block me during practice because I was played scrub defense. I was running, we were running the defense for the team we were playing that week. And I was playing on, on the left defensive end. I went to go in and I made a move and he just knocked me in the dirt, you know, because he was a junior and he had a lot more experience playing tight end than I did, did, did defensive end. But when he knocked me down, he grabbed me by the hand and picked me up. He goes, this is what you need to do playing this position. Taught me the swim move. Taught, taught me how, how to crash and roll. He took that time to show a freshman how to play the how to play a position opposite of him he's trying to defend or, tr- or trying mm-hmm. to stop that inclusion instead of saying you know dumb freshman that made the world meant the world to a freshman football player yeah um, and i think that goes like i said it goes across across the board when somebody who has tons of experience takes the time to help you when you're fresh in something because somewhere along the line, someone extended a hand to you also and said, let me show mm-hmm. you something, you know. Um, the inclusion into the tribe, into the social order, that's a, a human thing. Don't care yeah. where you're from, age, gender, nationality, whatever. That means a ton to be included into the tribe. Mm-hmm. It does. Uh, so backtracking a little bit, when I was in college, Went to Missouri Baptist for two years. <clears throat> Dropped out. Don't have a degree. Just spent three and a half years wasting time. It was a good experience, but um, I didn't get my degree. But I was going to be a youth pastor. That's what I was thinking. And knowing myself now, <laughs> it would have been a terrible fit. Me as a minister, <laughs> as a pastor, terrible fit. But what it did give me is because it, because it, no, it didn't give me this. What I always had, and the reason why I was attracted to that role, was because I wanted to see that light go off in people's eyes mm. when they grasp a concept, and it's oh, now this makes sense to me. You know, um, people. I've worked at the rack house for almost six years now, and people who have been there for a long time they joke that I have my um, my little apprentices. Um, and there's about four or five teenagers. Well, let's see, Michaela, Nick, Lacey, Chase. Yeah, there's about four or five people who work there right now who are all in that 
17 to 20, 22 age range. And they'll, they'll know that uh, they can come back and they can talk to Papa Matt about anything. And they call me Papa Matt. Right. They can talk to me about anything. And I might, I might give them a serious answer. I might give them an answer that will make them laugh. But I'm always going to listen. I'm always going to give them an answer that makes them think. Um, and those relationships are special to me. I've had um, a lot of them over the years. Uh, some last longer than others. You know, some I keep in touch with, some I don't. Um, just going back to like my, my church days when I was 21, 22, still working in, in the youth group, still working in church, still going to church actively. And uh, it's actually a funny story. I was, um, I rarely go to the bar to drink, but there's a little bar by the rack house that uh, everybody from the kitchen was going to drink at after night, uh, after the shift was over. So I was going to go along. I got off first because I'm always the first person there. So I'm leaving, you know, FIFO first in first out. Um, I'm leaving first. And I go over there to have a drink and open the door and this table of three dudes turns around. And I, I, I noticed that these are three dudes from 20 years ago, 15 years ago that I had in my little youth group study circle when they were like 13, 14. Right. And I was 20. And immediately they're like, oh, Matt. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> so I had, one, of the, one of these dudes, I have seen, um, some of them are friends with my brother, so I've seen them all, off and on. One of these dudes I hadn't seen in 10 years. And just walking in, into a bar, and they're, they're having beers, and you know, they do the same. And, and that the relationship of somebody that was younger, and you were older, and you had wisdom and knowledge, and, and, and you took time to understand them and not take advantage of them. Mm. And not simply, or simply brush them off as you dumb younger person. What do you have to give me? It, 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 you're still a hero 20 fucking years later right. to that person. And man, more than just, um, you know, I like the cooking, I like I like that putting a dish out and being like, that is perfect. That is exactly what I, what I do, you know, um, that exactly what I wanted. It's exactly what I wanted it to be when I first thought about it. That's a great rush and a great high. Um, but teaching somebody a skill that you know that they're going to have for the rest of their life and is a skill that is applicable, right? People are going to cook. You know, people aren't going to stop eating. We, I actually mentioned that while I was cleaning those chickens. Um, I was like, so now you know how to clean a chicken, you know? She's like, when I might, um, I don't really clean chickens. I was like, hey, people know. aren't going to stop eating. That's right. You know, uh, it's, it's, and, and, <laughs> and rich people are never going to stop trying to overpay for something that they could easily do themselves if they just learn, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, it, it, there's, there's uh, a, to me, a unique joy I take in my job in not just um, uh, being the chef or a chef, but in helping other people all along the road mm. doing that themselves. Because uh, once upon a time, I was there. Once upon a time, I, wasn't, I was in the kitchen with no confidence. And there are a lot of people who are in the kitchen with no confidence 
or a little confidence. And the more confidence I can instill in them makes my kitchen stronger. Absolutely. I, I, I so, when, I'm sorry. Um, no, go ahead. Uh, the, I worked for Harpoon's uh, Brothers when I was in high school at a pizza joint. I uh-huh. think it was my first, maybe my first day. I think I'd already been there for a day. And um, I got the pie out of the oven, put it in the box. I went to cut it, and I cut it off center. Well, in my brain, I'm like, well, this pizza is useless because it's not cut right. You know, it's not going to be in, in the pretty little triangles. What, you know? And and I called his brother over and said, what do I do? He goes, oh, easy. He cut the damn thing in squares and closed the box. He goes, it's done. He said, yeah. I don't know if it's squares or triangles, they're going to be the same way. I'm like, mm-hmm. holy shit, you can do that? <laughs> He's like, yeah. He said, yeah, he goes, it, it goes, they're not going to be expecting it, but it's going to eat the same way. Yeah. You know. Um, he, knew how to, he knew how to fix it in post. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I want you to give everybody, if you don't mind, your recipe for cooking the perfect steak. Because a lot of people in this, a lot of people in the South, including my beautiful wife, we we first mm-hmm. met. She thought that you had to grill a steak. No, and I, I one night I said, "I think we were married yet." I said, um, "I'm gonna go, go get a couple of steaks cooked tonight." She goes, "You don't have a grill." I said, "You don't have to have a grill to cook a steak." And she looked at me like I had two heads. Yeah, she said, how are you gonna cook it? I said, "In the in the skillet, in the in the, in the cast iron pan." She was, yeah. you, you you can't. I was like, "Don't tell me how I can and can't cook my steak." And so I cooked it, and she goes, "That was really good." I was like, "Yeah, yeah." I want you to give everybody your your steps to cooking the perfect ribeye. Okay, so first off, uh, grilled steaks are great. I agree, yes. and I'm totally down with them. I don't think if you're grilling a steak, if if you're grilling burgers and hot and hot dogs and brats, propane propane is fine. If you're grilling a steak, nice cut of meat. You need to work your coals. You need to bring them down. Get some, maybe some apple wood, some some nice wood chips, pecan. Throw those on there. Let that steep in, and then throw your steak on. So a grilled steak is is great, and I love a good flame grilled or just you know a, a nice grilled steak. But we want to talk. The best way to do a steak is cast iron. You start with a nice seasoned cast iron. At the Rack House, we have an 18-inch cast iron. We do all of our steaks and stuff in, and it sits on a burner um, back in the corner of, of, we have 10 burners, and it sits back in one of the corners um, on high heat the whole time. Every once in a while, we'll take it off, scrape some stuff off. But what I do is I use beef tallow. So I take all my trimmings from my steaks when I cut them, all my beef trimmings, and I render the fat down in a pan in an oven about 300 degrees for about four or five hours. Drain that off, let it solidify. Um, and so when I go have a nice hot cast iron, 500 degrees, you take about four tablespoons of tallow, you put that in there, or butter, unsalted butter. It's fine. Um, butter has a higher smoke point, mm. and so you don't get the, that tallow, you get... Uh, a much nicer crust, but it doesn't have that burnt taste to it. It's still nice and crisp, but it doesn't have that char taste to it. Um, so yeah, you take your steak, ribeye at room temperature, salt 
and crack black pepper on both sides. Let that sit for a minute. Again, room temperature close to it. Tallow in a nice hot pan in your cast iron. Put your steak in there. About three minutes, two, three minutes on one side, depending on the thickness of your steak, flip it over. Two minutes on the other side. That's one of the mistakes people make is they think that equal sides, or equal time for each side. Now, the first, when you first, that first side needs to be down for just a little bit longer than that second side because you, you know, still in that high heat. So if you want a nice, even um, color throughout, uh, you need a little, slightly less time on, on the second side. Then an oven at 500 degrees. Take that steak, put it in a different pan, or you can keep it in the cast iron. Um, but in that 500 degree oven for about, depending, again, depending on the thickness of the steak, three, four, five minutes. All right, question. Uh, the, the, second, are, the second pan, is it already heated in in the oven or is it just a, just a regular room temperature pan? So what I use, I have a square pan. It's about 12 by nine. It's a half, half sheet pan. Okay. For those who in, who in the industry who know, it's a half sheet pan. I keep that in the oven all the time. Okay. So that's just in the oven. And that's what I'll, when I have a meat, I put that on there. It's got a nice char that's built up over it. 400 degrees, you said? 500. 500, okay. And then you're in, depending, a ribeye usually about an inch thick, so I would say about two minutes in the oven. Not because you're trying to cook anything more, but you're trying to warm that center. Right. Um, on the rest for about, uh, pull it out of the oven, but on the rest for about, um, you know, anywhere from two to five minutes, depending on how much blood you want on the plate. That's another thing people don't understand is that, um, when you when you cook a piece of meat, especially red meat, you know, all that blood that's in there is doesn't settle down for until about five minutes after you're done cooking. So if you don't mind blood on the plate, that's fine. Uh, you know, Two minutes on the rest, three minutes on the rest, on the plate, cut it up, down the hatch. That's about, uh, that's for like a medium rare? That's about for medium rare. Yeah, that's right. medium rare. Do you, that's something that, that I learned listening uh, to give that some thought. Uh, I, I would never, I was some kind of animal. The minute it came out of the oven, I wanted, or the minute, minute I, I finished cooking it, I wanted to tear into the steak. Letting that thing yeah. rest brings out more flavor. You have, Less blood in your in your mashed potatoes, it makes a total difference as, as far as the flavor, the way your plate looks. It's so good, um, and I, I love the fact that you trolled Tinker when we came up there to eat at your restaurant. <laughs> when I, I ordered, I, I had I confided into Matt about how my wife uh, pretty much drinks Heinz fifty seven sauce with her steak uh, instead of having mm-hmm. a, a nice a nice glass of wine. Or some water with her steak. She she has a, opens cracks open a bottle of Heinz fifty seven. So Matt had had made this delicious tenderloin uh, for me, and I was over the moon for it. And so he brings they bring out uh, him and him and Maggie. Shout out to Maggie if you listen to this. Bring out our food. It looks delicious, and he places this this beautifully cut tenderloin in front of me, and and he has a gravy boat in his hand. He goes, and you pour this, this is your ajus to pour over the top of it. Uh, like you would Heinz 57 and stared my wife in the eyes 
To which point she shoots daggers at me, and I said, "Yeah, I told him." You know, of course, Matt thought it was hilarious because he didn't have to take her home. Uh, but yeah, Tinker did want me to ask you uh, something that well, I've struggled with it also. Uh, cooking chicken, more chicken than fish. Cooking chicken perfectly, where it's not overdone and it's not underdone, of course. Um, yeah, what's kind of the secret to that? You cook it like on a uh, on a stovetop. Just gonna like sear it. Okay. Before that, I I want to say you coming into the restaurant and me getting cooked for you was great. I love cooking for friends. Um, I love uh, you know I've I've always said that your mama's fried chicken is more nutritious than any salad you can buy from the grocery store because because there's there's love there's intent right. there's there, intent in that right? food right. Yes, you're you're you are thinking about the person that you that will be eating this later as you are making something ten steps down the road from the actual finished product. So uh, that was I, I quite enjoyed that, and you know my regulars and the people who know me who come in to the restaurant, uh, I really do enjoy. There there's some people who are regulars come in every month, every two weeks that I will craft a dish just around them right. and what I know they like, you know, and I'll put that up as a feature and. Two or three people will order it, but when that person comes in and gets it, they're like, oh my God, fucking love this. I'm like, yeah, because I made it thinking about you. Um, but of you coming in, me <laughs> saying to her, I, I got some high 57 sauce, but that's going to go get it. Uh, that's the thing that I remember the most when trolling your wife. Um, <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. It was good. I, I really enjoyed it. She thought it was hilarious also. She really did. Um, but yeah, cooking chicken is one of those things that uh, moisture is key. So if you're searing your piece of chicken, uh, I would say hot pan, super hot pan, sear your sides. Uh, again, searing is just a way to lock in moisture. Mm-hmm. You're creating a tough outer crust that um, basically the meat can't sweat through. And then I would transfer, once you have a nice sear on your surfaces, transfer it to a, another pan that is maybe at a medium heat with plenty of moisture in there, however you're going to do it, um, what, however the end product is. If that moisture needs to take the, the form of something acidic with vinegar or... Uh, like lime juice, lemon acidic. juice? Well, just apple cider vinegar, really. Okay. Like if you're doing... All, so all barbecue sauces have, have heavy vinegar in them, right? Mm. Tomatoes. Super acidic. That's your base of all barbecue sauce. Gotcha. Or almost all barbecue sauces. So, so super acidic. So if you're doing like a barbecue chicken and you're doing it in a pan, super hot to sear, maybe transfer to another pan, uh, or just kill the heat on that, add, uh, you know, some apple cider vinegar and water, knowing that you're going to take that out of that apple cider vinegar and water and put it into um, a barbecue sauce. Okay. So you're not going to, the acidity of the apple cider vinegar isn't going to overwhelm flavor. Um, where at the rack house, we have an oven that's called a CVAP oven and it's a water oven. Well, when she asked me that, I told her, I said, he's going to tell you to go buy a sous vide. I can tell you that. That's what he's going to tell you right now. <laughs> yep. Uh, and you, 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 can get, you can get a decent sous vide stick for 20, 30 bucks. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, sous vide is not like it's not $200 like it was five, 10 years ago. Right. Like, um, are you familiar with the with the grocery store Aldi? Right. Yes. Okay. 
Um, one of the other chefs I work with bought a Susie stick at Aldi's for twenty five dollars. Wow! And when ours crapped out at the rack house, he brought his in, and that's what we've been using for like a past year. <laughs> is a twenty five dollar Aldi Aldi's Susie stick. Um, but yeah, so we have so when we do chickens, we'll put that into this special water oven that um, you know cook it at dries the right you know right at the proper temperature. But if you really want to get technical with it, yeah, sous vide is really the best way to go for for chicken because um, you know you can you know and you don't need to have a a um, uh, not food dehydrator but um, Oh, what's seal. the thing you hit? Yeah, vacuum seal. Yeah, you don't have to have a, a vacuum seal. Normally, what I do, I don't even mess with our vacuum sealer because it's a piece of shit. I don't like it. Um, and it never gets the seal right. It always seems to, to break open on me. I use one gallon Ziploc bag. Okay. Put my, my meat in there. Uh, try, try to squeeze out as much oxygen as I can, as much air. Um, put whatever spices or anything I want in there. So if I was doing like a, a lemon chicken, or chicken that had a chicken dish that had lemon in there. Take my chicken breast or whatever, put it in the bag. Um, a little sprig of thyme, some salt, a couple slices of lemon, a little bit of oil, um, just to make things make things work together. Marry a little bit easier, easier. Um, and then try and get out as much air. Pop that in the sous vide, and you're done. Even if you don't want, if you don't want to get a sous vide, um, turn your oven on on low for two hours get a stainless steel uh pot or even a deep skillet fill it with water uh put your um ziploc bag in there with your meat and put something on top of it to keep the meat submerged leave it in there for you know if it's at 150 degrees or 100 most ovens their lowest setting is 175 so 175 degrees at uh for about 45 minutes for a piece of chicken you're done Cool. And then pull that out, sear it. Uh, if you want to get seared, sear it on a hot surface, and you're done. Um, yeah, there's a lot of weird hacks you can get around in cooking, and you don't have to have you know two thousand dollar water ovens to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. a, a, lot, a lot of it is just I'm telling you, man, cooking, and you know this, but a lot of cooking is just looking around the kitchen at what you have. Mm. And Jerry rigging things, right? You know. Now I want to have you. And on. I've, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I've I've the, the method I just described to you of uh, cooking things in a pan in the oven at 175 degrees. I've done it. It worked before. Right. You know. Oh, the the, the sous vide stick isn't working. It's not keeping the right temperature. Okay. Well, we'll we'll do it a different way. Yeah. You know that whole method of me is just saying, hey, put it in a pan, cover it with water something to press it down at 175 degrees for 45 minutes. I know that works because I've done it because I've had to do it right. because dinner service was in three hours and I need to have the chicken done. You know, now I've got another friend of mine, um, Brandy, shout out to Brandy. I want to have her on uh, sometime. She went to a, a culinary college down in new Orleans. And mm-hmm. I, I think that it'd be a lot of fun to have y'all talk together on the show. So I, I'm kind of trying to get that lined up when I, if I can get y'all to on the same wavelength, um, you know, because she was trained, I'm sure it was you know French style cooking, being from 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 down there. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get into conspiracy theories too. It's gonna be a hard left here. Um, 
Okay, no, that's fine. I'll tell you, Addison was Addison told me when he was on that if he shut up that you would talk the whole time. I said, Well, I'm gonna give him the fucking chance. I said, because Matt tries to on their show, Matt tries to interject his point over crinkling bags and obnoxious laughter. Love you, Addison. Over obnoxious mm-hmm. laughter. And uh, I'm giving Matt a chance to speak tonight. And it's pretty damn sad he has to come on a show opposite of his <laughs> to get his point across. Um, you know, my, one of my favorite things about the show, and not maybe not the show, but about, because this happens even off the show, about me and Addison interacting. One of my favorite things to do is to get that big, giant laugh out of him. <laughs> that laugh where he loses all control of his body except for his laughter for about 10 seconds and ends up clapping like that dumb Mike Tyson gif. Because he does that. He does that. People he people don't realize that he does that when I make him laugh like that, he'll do that. Slapping his hands um, like so a seal. About, yeah. <laughs> that's one of my favorite things about the podcast and about him and I and how we interact is that I look for moments to inject something that just makes him lose his shit. Well, it's, it's, I, it's I think the, all good friends do that. It's the, well, it's the classic. You two are like the classic duo. I mean, y'all have some serious moments on the show for sure. When y'all go into some deep dives and some stuff like the, um, the stuff with like Hillsong United and mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's who it was over, uh, you know, the sexual assault allegations. Y'all can get, y'all can get serious at times about, about things or have a, a genuine, you know, heart to heart moment on the mic. Um, yeah, but 99% of the time y'all play the classic comic duo of the straight man and the slapstick, you know, it's like a whole nother Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello. Yeah. It's, it's like Abbott and Costello. But there's none. there's none of the annoying musical numbers. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of what the it's Abbott and Costello does conspiracy. Um, well, <laughs> especially how to put it. Um, uh, uh, to put it in Addisonized term, Addison, terms, Addison and I would it would be Conan and Richter. Yeah, that I guess. Yeah, or a um, you know Carson and uh, McMahon. You know, gotcha. um, that that doesn't translate necessarily into the podcast because we don't necessarily fill those roles, but the. Um, those, the arc, those archetypes, I think, bring true with Addison being, you know, the host, the guy who can be goofy, but is, you know, has, you know, things he wants to move through and, and, and do in an agenda. And the guy who can also be goofy, um, but also very serious, but also derail things. Well, um, I didn't even introduce so, you as co-host of Give That Some Thought when I, I <laughs> you were just the suburban wizard. You have ascended possibly past your, your podcast moniker. It's no, it's it's true. I have. I, I have. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I just hang on to it because it's part of Addison's therapy, and uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't want his children, his children, to be childless, right. penniless, or, or fatherless, fatherless, homeless on the streets. Right. You know. Um. Yeah. No. Uh, but uh, honestly. To just to touch on the podcast one more one more time. All you want, go ahead. I'm letting you talk. I'm like no, Addison. Go ahead. Our our, our our relationship and the podcast, and that's where we tell people, hey, don't listen. Or if you didn't like it, okay, so what? Fuck off. Because it's, it's not. Yeah, it's therapy, and it's been therapy for both of us for years. 
And it's two, two men who relate to each other, who are not afraid to speak the truth to each other, but at the same time are, uh, know what the other needs and knows what they need to hear and are sensitive to it. And as men, I think we need uh, other men in our lives who we can open up to, but also can smack us in the back of the head and be like, motherfucker, you need to stop doing what you're doing. Just straighten up. Uh, I talked, kind of alluded to this or talked about it on the show, but Water Cast was born out of Addison trying to slowly nudge me into not drinking so much. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I love Watercast. And Watercast is a little thing, a little, little segment we do on our podcast where we review different bottles of water. And it's dumb. It's, it's fantastic. So fucking dumb. That, that, <laughs> hang on one second. That, that was, I think that was probably Tinker's favorite segment of the, the first, the first show that I turned on for her to listen to is when y'all reviewed the mm-hmm. Blackwater. Oh yeah. Yeah. God, that was awesome. Yeah. So yeah. So that has been an ongoing joke now in our house about, Hey, what did, what did Matt and Addison review this week? Or, you know, how did that one go over? How did this happen? You know, I, I think she had mentioned one time that at the rack house, y'all should employ a water sommelier. Yeah, which is a total real thing. Oh, I'm sure it is. I have no doubt. So it is. It is. <laughs> At three-star restaurants, or, or restaurants that are trying to get a Michelin star or a Michelin star, uh, oh, no. it is, you don't just have a, um, a wine sommelier. You have a water sommelier as well. Mm. And their job is to pick mineral waters and a bunch of different waters that pair well with the beginning, middle, and end of the meal for cleansing the palate. And it's, yeah, you're giving people four ounces of water between courses and between wines, but there's an incredible, like, science that goes into it right. when it comes to minerality or, yeah, it's, it's a real thing. But, uh, no, Watercast was was Addison, you know, being like, hey, you don't need to, we don't need to take a break um, in the middle of podcast so you can go make yourself another rum and coke. Here's some water. And, uh, yeah, man, that, that really, that gentle nudge of knowing that I didn't need somebody telling me, hey, man, drinking has gotten out of hand for you. Yeah. I needed somebody to, to gently show me that drinking got out, out of hand for me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that, that's, the, that's the core of Watercast. And it's, um, it's a fantastic so yeah, it's not, segment. It, I, 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 it's, I, not going, it's not going away, Aaron. Yeah, fuck that guy. Because uh, he probably don't even listen to this show because, you know, I'm a, a heretic and a heathen. So He um, probably doesn't because he, he's, he's so short. <laughs> he's only 5'7", poor guy. <laughs> yeah, my show, you have to be at least 5'8 to, to listen to this show. Just, uh, <laughs> just, just I think I think Tinker is 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 5'7 or 5'8". I mean, she's she's pretty tall for a woman. Um, yeah. And again, that's the reason she... She got a hold of me because she has a thing for giants. She just, she, she just couldn't let go. No, she, honestly, mm-hmm. we had that conversation one day about. I'd mentioned that uh, women now are shaming men, or they have no interest in men who are under six feet tall. And, yeah. And she let me know right quick that she probably wouldn't have been interest, interested in me if I was under six feet tall. And I said, yeah. "What? What the fuck? 
you know, this, this personality and these great looks <laughs> didn't really, she's like, she said, no, that she wanted to, she wanted to be married to someone who was, would still be taller than her if she was wearing heels. Yeah. Um, but you know, most of the men, like her grandfather was a very tall guy. Uh, her brother is, is, is six, four, six, five, you know, so she's, she's been surrounded by giant men for her entire life. Um, no, but I wanted to get into, um, I want to get into what the conspiracy thing, what have you always been interested in them? Was there a linchpin that got a hold of it? What, what kind of drew you uh, into that world? We'll circle back to that, but first all women, hashtag all women. <laughs> so I think that there's a biological thing that drives women, uh, to seek out. Um, and not be satisfied unless they have a mate that's significantly taller than them. Because high heels are a way that women use to make their calves and ass pop. Right. Okay. And a woman in heels doing her best to be as sexually attractive as she can, which women, that's when women wear heels, that's what they're doing. Um, they want a man who's still a couple inches taller than them, than them even in heels, because they still want to feel submissive and still want to have that um, disparity in height and physical intensity, prowess, presence. Dominance. Um, because I, I feel like that you can't be biology and women naturally want to have a mate that they feel submissive to um, well, uh, in a physical way. I don't think it's so much submissive. I, I think that you hit the nail one time when you said Women, women want a man who is, who could become violent if necessary, and not violent toward them, yeah. but violent in yeah. the sense of being protected. Yeah, yeah, um, and and um, yeah, a, a women just don't feel that way against with somebody that they are are the same size as. Um, not not to say that that's you know every relationship, but if you look around and the relationships that uh, you know, seem to be the most successful, I guess, it's that dynamic tends to be in play. Mm. Anyway, uh, that's just my armchair philosophy about why women are terrible. But uh, <laughs> so, oh, so, man. Yes. So I guess the first time I was really um, was really these things don't add up with this story was Genesis six and in Sunday school when I was a teenager and you go through the story of Genesis and it's creation and then uh, some more creation and then the garden and they got cast out of the garden. And all of a sudden, God is flooding the world for no apparent reason. <clears throat> and it was the Genesis 6. It was, it was the Nephilim. It was, wait a minute, what? Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Angels and demons mated with women on earth? And there were giants? What? what? Uh, that's, that's just, yeah, it was, it was bad times. And the Nephilim, it was mostly just, it, was, it wasn't, it wasn't giants. It wasn't uh, 
spiritual beings and physical beings, crossbreeding. It was, oh, that's just a metaphor for how sinful man had become, right? That he was literally becoming demonic. I was like, but that's not what it says. Mm. Obviously, that's not what it says. And that's, that was one of the first times that it clicked that, okay, the official story, what I'm being told, the comfortable narrative is, is being accepted because um, it's much easier to digest than what the horrific truth might be, you know? Um, and then it was, uh, you know, I kind of got, you know, as you do when you're 14, you care much more about what cities feel like than, uh, than <laughs> what the Bible has to say. And so there was a, <laughs> there was about a seven or eight year period where I really didn't um, do much with conspiracies or really you know, look into anything. And then 9-11 happened. And for a lot, like, like a lot of people in my generation, our generation, um, at first, uh, 9-11 was rage-inducing, and we just wanted revenge. And Answers. I remember using the term, the term sand niggers, like not ironically, but I meant it. Um, and and just, just feeling hatred and rage um, over, over 9-11. And, and then I started looking into it, um, and it wasn't until several years later that I realized the false left-right dichotomy, the us versus them, that's always played uh, to make us act and think a certain way. And I realized that my response personally to uh, September 11th uh, was, I bought into that. I was played. I was, uh, my emotions were used against me. I actually had a, one of, a girlfriend who broke up with me when I was 18, because 9-11 happened when I was 18. I, I remember vividly I was had this shitty little apartment in Montgomery City, Missouri. I was working as, um, you know, I was running this little burger stand, and I would usually, I was, I was always, in, I've always been a news junkie. I've always enjoyed the news. I've always, you know, when I was, if you listen to my podcast before, you know, I was a huge fan of Rushland Ball since I was like fourteen. So punditry, talk radio, people talking politics, people arguing—that's something that I've always been into. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I would always fall asleep, usually watching CNN mm. and I woke up on nine 11 and one of the towers was already, you know, falling. And I was like, Holy shit, what's going on? Um, and I remember swinging my feet out of bed and sitting there for like 15 minutes watching the TV. And I'm like, I got to get up and go to work. But, you know, um, I didn't for a, for a minute. And then I was just, Nobody was uh, coming into the restaurant. We were all just watching TV, this little TV we had in the restaurant, this little black and white, like five-inch kitchen TV from 30 years ago. Anyway, so so that visceral imagery of 9-11 and then coupled, I guess, with experiences of going through some stuff myself. But by the time, probably about 2003, when it was, oh, we have to, now we have to go into Iraq. For what? Why are we going to Iraq? You know, now, you know, we have, we have to invade these Middle Eastern countries. And um, I, I, that's when I took a hard left in my political leanings. Right. 
because the Bush hatred was so strong. Same here, man. With people who were were uh, disenfranchised and jaded with what happened in 9-11 and with the Bush presidency. Um, we were we were we were totally fed up with Clinton and his shenanigans and all the, you know all these little you know I mean I was the generation that watched the first you know Iraq War in 1991 watched tanks rolling into Kuwait live on CNN. Right. That's fucking traumatic. Yeah, it's broadcast to us. Like war, war in and of itself is a horrendous, terrible thing um, that that. Soldiers are, are traumatized for, but to see it on TV and have be like your you know your sister change the channel, like this is dumb. Let's watch something else. Let's watch something else. You're watching history. War is happening right right now, and to see it be so flippant, I think there's a certain rage that people coming out of the '90s had towards. Um, you know the 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 regime or the powers that be showing us on TV exactly what's happening in real time, you know, and it's not just what you're learning in history class five ten years later. It's oh you you get you get to watch people burn and oil fields burn. Right. Uh, that's a certain amount. Of, that's a kind of a mind fuck. And so yeah, I took a hard left in my politics about 2003 when they were kind of like in vogue to be like, fuck Bush, this right. is this, this stupid, you know, no more, no more war, wars for oil. And then that's really when I kind of um, went into about a four or five year through college and then on into it of being, you know, um, I guess, yeah, it was about five years, five, six years, because it's, uh, I remember I voted for Obama in 2008. Same way here, exactly. Um, and then in 2012, by 2012, I was caucusing for Ron Paul. Same here, man. Exactly, we have the same timeline. <laughs> because it was, okay, the, the right is fucked up. Now, okay, maybe I'll try out the left. Maybe let me see if the Democrat thing will do it. If I'll be satisfied with that. And it wasn't because it was hope and change and then utter bullshit. You know, uh, if you look at the policies of, and I always say the three things that to look at when it comes to a president or a, um, uh, anybody who's, who's in office, look at their domestic policy, their foreign policy and their monetary policy. And since Kennedy, none of it's changed. The titles have changed, Democrat or Republican, the faces have changed, the rhetoric has changed, and the rhetoric is always different. That's something that people, you know, going back to my early days of, you know, studying the classic Greek argumentation and, and debate is rhetoric, not just the facts you present, but how you present those facts means a whole lot to an argument. And it's very easy to sway somebody's mind when you say, oh, well, somebody think of the children. How will this affect the children? And you make an emotional peer. So the rhetoric in an argument and how you present facts and facts and how you present news, uh, it matters. Um, and we see that 
more than ever today because you can have a headline that a Republican re- can read and be like, yeah, that supports my view. And you change the title and change the wording of, the, of an argument. And a Democrat can be like, yeah, that supports my view. That supports you know what I believe in. So it's, it's all in, in the wording. And I think that's where they, they split people up. Um, but yeah, seeing how nothing really changed between Bush and Obama. Um, by 2010, I was like, fuck this bullshit. Yeah. I am, I'm going to look for anybody who is just telling me the truth as I see it exactly. in my day to day. And here comes Ron Paul. Here comes this, this guy who's not, you know, he's not good looking. He's not flashy. But when he opens his mouth and talks, he's saying things that make sense. He's spelling things out. And, and it, you know, he, Ron Paul was the guy who opened my eyes to the Federal Reserve, to the endless wars. That's when I started learning about, you know. Um, CIA blowback. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, started learning about, you know, uh, the 150-year-long drug war we've had um, by importing drugs from from third world countries into first world countries in order to control the populace of first world countries in order to get them to fucking vote in a way that that then justifies our wars for more drugs in third world countries and how that cycle has continued for a hundred fucking, fucking years, for 200 years since the East Indian Company exactly. is dead in North America. You know, uh, and, and this, this game has been played on us and, you know, the whole end the Fed was really... Uh, with Ron Paul in 2010 was, okay, this is somebody who I can relate to and somebody who's finally um, just just telling the truth, you know, and not not dressing things up to make himself or, or his party look good, but just telling me the truth. Well, imagine being a 30-year-old you know? man like I was and not realizing that our currency wasn't backed by gold anymore. Mm-hmm. That was never taught to me in school. I had never heard that before in my life. We've been off the gold standard for, for 50 years at that point. You know, yeah. or, or, or 40 years at that point. <clears throat> I had no clue. I had no clue that the Fed had, we hadn't even seen the gold that stored in Fort Knox since then. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was, uh, I talked about it with Addison, you know, when I, I turned it over to the Republican d- debates just to crack wise at, at these these old guys on stage who are totally opposite of me and getting sucked in by this seven year old dude from Texas telling it like it was calling the, calling his people on stage dipshits too. You know, yeah. he, he pulled no punches uh, mm-hmm. and he went into, you know, how the CIA installed the Shah in, in, in Iran and overturned a, a democracy just because, yeah. because of oil prices. Um, yeah, I'm I'm totally with you on that was that was kind of it's you know we had the exact same experience from from nine eleven and up until till Ron Paul ran. Me me and you share the mm-hmm. same the same roller coaster, I guess, of, of political thought. Yeah. Um and then, you know, uh moving on from there, uh, I got big into the you know, I wasn't doing marches or anything, but I got big into the support and the ideology of um Occupy Wall Street in 2011 and 2012. Uh, you know, I wasn't, you know, doing the sit-ins and stuff like that. You know, I wasn't occupying Wall Street, but I was like, you know, in full support of it. Um, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but it's amazing how quickly that got co-opted 
Um, By the far left, Antifa, whatnot. Yes, yeah. But what you have going out of that is a splintering of the movement of Occupy into left and right. And that's where the revolution, the love revolution, right, that Ron Paul was, was talking about, the, um, the, the change that people wanted to see coming off of this, hey, a black guy's president now, now everything's fine. Hope and change. We're all good. And we weren't all good. And nothing changed. And Occupy Wall Street became a thing and then immediately split up into left-right dichotomy. Again, right. it's, and it's, it's that same, it's, and that's what frustrates me so much about conspiracy, about politics, maybe not conspiracy, but about politics, is that that same us versus them, my team versus your team, Cardinals versus Cubs, left versus right, gets played every single time and we don't realize that it's, it's the same the same play is being played with just different players. Um, and it got split up into, into what became Antifa, but with, because Barack Obama was still the president, um, you know, it didn't have any bite or fire behind it. So the people who came out of Occupy as leftists or Democrats didn't really have the same fervor, but on the right, it became the Tea Party. Right. And we have people like Ted Cruz who came up out of that and, um, that was very quickly co-opted. Um, Astroturfed. Yes, yeah. In 2012 and 2013, you had a lot of people who went on because, you know, CNN and MSNBC was like, okay, we're going to interview the leader of, of uh, the Tea Party, and it was just some guy who's been a politician and had been in Washington for the past 10, 15 years. It's, it's not the, the people who are actually doing things or actually a part of the Tea Party movement. Doing the actual it's some work. guy who's, yeah, who's, who's come on to just give some talking points and make the Tea Party look bad. Right. So people can't, so it can't gain support. And that was the, was when I first became cognizant of the media isn't reporting. The media shapes narrative. They don't tell the truth. They, they get their orders and then they, those orders are, Hey, make this group of people look bad and this group of people look good and divide people. And then it got, I was like, okay, Operation Mockingbird. What's, what's that? I, I found out about Operation Mockingbird, which is the CIA has infiltrated our media for 50 years now. Right. You know, um, TV and radio became a thing because, uh, you know, people wanted to sell washing soap and cigarettes. And that's why you have TV shows because commercials needed to be a thing and people wanted to sell their products. But once they realized how effective it was in selling washing soap and cigarettes, then it was then very quickly um, used to control what people thought and, and, and the narrative. And it was, was very quickly, um, you have people who are working for intelligence services, directly working for the government or trained in intelligence services and the government who are then going into media. You know, it's, it's um, well, that's Anderson the- Cooper was a CIA intern for two years after he got out of Vanderbilt University. Right. And there's a saying in the CIA is, you were, there's no such thing as an ex 
CIA. Just like there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. No, no, you are a Marine. You are CIA until the day you die. You may be retired. Um, you may have moved on to other things, but you're never yeah. former. That, that's best. Yeah. Um, yeah. We know that's when, when they started broadcast. I, I learned I learned this when I was working in radio. You know, we are uh, in any kind of terrestrial broadcast, whether it be TV or radio, uh, we are required to do so much time during the broadcast day to report news and report um, uh, community, really community events. Um, you hear a lot, you hear like a lot of ads late at night, typically on radio uh, for the ad council, because when they started doing broadcast, the government said you can use the airwaves, but you must do one hour of news a day. And you must do mm-hmm. like so many minutes of, of community awareness or whatnot. And so usually they would, they would, they will sprinkle news in throughout the day until they started having like 24 hour news on radio. You get, you know, the top of the hour report, a good little three minute mm-hmm. you know, segment. And at the end of the day, at the, the very last, like, couple hours in radio so like 10 11 and 12 o'clock up to the 12 midnight hours your all your commercial breaks are all your community ad council you know click it or ticket mm-hmm. you know does your kid have autism all that kind of stuff that's they they wait to the end of the day because that's when commercials are cheaper because nobody's listening to the radio then yeah um, yeah. yeah the government implemented those and it's almost like they were sliding their own mouthpiece into broadcast from from the beginning mm-hmm. The, the, yeah. first, the first time they fired up a transistor to broadcast radio or TV or whatever, they said, okay, if you're going to start these privatized companies, you're going to give us a little kickback too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, are you familiar with the, maybe you're old. I, I'm not quite old enough to remember this, but when I know you're only like three or four years older than me, mm-hmm. um, I think three, two and a half or three. Um, but TV stations used to sign off. Oh yeah, at midnight or eleven o'clock. I remember. I, I know, like our um, oh shit, and it just be dead air overnight right. until like our, seven in the morning. Our P, our local PBS affiliate. You no, know, I think up until they may still do it now. Um, I mean, up to a couple of years ago, shit. When I was when I had my own business, that was in two thousand and three or four. The local PBS affiliate. One in the morning, played the national anthem, did the whole slideshow of, of stuff, you know, and it did. Um, yeah, I remember when I was young, like our local NBC, CBS, ABC, they would all sign off around around 2.30 in the morning, and it was dead until mm-hmm. 4.30, 5 o'clock in, in the morning. Yeah. Um, and they still do it today, only now instead of, you know, signing off and having dead air, they just rerun episodes of I Love Lucy and South Park. <laughs> And, and and infomercials, you know, shark back in my pillow right. until five in the morning when it's time for news again. Um, but when they used to sign off, and this was they did this in the seventies and eighties, they would play the national anthem. Maybe not the national anthem. Maybe it was like my country's kids of the year or something like that. But it was this patriotic song uh, about America, and they would have a flag waving in the background, right? And this wasn't on all stations, but there was one that ran that 
using today's modern technology, you can go back and look and, and slow it down, and it would have subliminal messages that would be played through the broadcast. And your eyes aren't fast enough to see it as it's happening in real time. But if you go frame by frame, it says obey, love government, you know. And so, no, our, our, our broadcast space, our radio waves, our TV has been since the jump, like you said, since the first transistor fired up, it was how can we use this technology to make people do what we want them to do? How can we get them to buy our brand of washing soap or our brand of cigarettes? How can we get them to support our foreign war for oil in Iraq that is actually not a, a war for oil, but it's actually a war to go and get the stargates that Saddam unearthed in 1998? Yeah. Um... Which, is, which is a theory that I love, and I there's no basis to it, but... <laughs> Um, apparently the entire Iraq war in 2003 wasn't about oil. It wasn't about Saddam. It wasn't about weapons of mass destruction. It's because he is unearthed ancient Stargates. And I'm talking like Stargate SG-1 style Stargates, okay? James Spader jumping through the wormhole. Stargates that he is unearthed in the ancient city of Ur that could lead us to other planets, which... Well, you know, <sighs> look, look, about my, my mother-in-law. Oh, I love my mother-in-law. She is one of the best people you'll ever meet in your life. And before she retired from teaching school, she was kind of into the the conspiracy flow. We, we've had discussions before, you know, uh, mm -hmm. back to 9-11. You know, when we first we first met, you know, we'd br she brought up 9-11 uh, one of the first few times I met her. And I said, you know, I really don't believe... I don't believe the official story. Um, yeah, I'm not. I, you know, I I think um, I think the Sods had a lot more involvement than is actually mm -hmm. known. Um, I, I and and the official report had had holes all in it. Uh, but since she has retired, I have sent her books <laughs> through Amazon. Uh, Graham Hancock, uh, the fingerprints of God or the gods, things like that. And it makes mm -hmm. it drives Tinker up the wall. She said, Stop feeding her this stuff. I said, <laughs> there's nothing. And so whenever we get a chance to go down to see her, you know, we'll sit down at the table and, and have have some coffee or whatnot. And I'll say, So, what do you think about and bring up the, the hot oh, let me tell you what I think about it. You know, and of course Tinker's rolling yeah. her eyes. It just drives her up the wall. Um, you know, but I, I've sent her, um, as you know, I'm a big fan of, of the Gnostic, the Gnostic write, writings. Um, uh, mm -hmm. one year for Christmas, I got her a copy of, of, um, the book of Enoch and, and yeah. she flipped her lid. I've always wanted to read this. I, I it's like, just, she's like, I'm going to, I'm going to take my time. And I'm going to read it and digest it and whatnot. Um, it, it, it drives the wife up the wall. But I think there is nothing wrong with doing a little digging. No, not at all. Um, not at all. And especially when you realize that the people out there who are trying to keep you from digging and that the people who are at the very top of the control pyramid, the people who are on CNN shaping the narrative, 
the people who are behind the politicians who are telling lies out of both sides of their mouth, the people who are who have the money, old money, old, old money. Um, they have no interest. They have no investment, let me put it that way, in telling you the truth. They do have, however, tremendous investment in making sure that they can control you. So the narratives that were fed, the truths that were told, are only um, as much of the truth as is useful for, for controlling us and for keeping us in line. Because it's been like this since the beginning of time, well, since the beginning of, of society, is, is if the people realized that their enemy wasn't some other poor guy just trying to provide for his family, but was actually the guy at the top saying, no, you, you bought and sold something, so you need to pay tax on this. You use this road and you send your kids to school, so you need to pay tax. You own a home, you need to pay taxes on it. You know, you, you buy something, you pay tax. You sell something, you pay tax. You, you own something, you pay tax. Uh, you, oh, you had made a profit this year from your business. That's taxable. Uh, you died. Tax you again. You made some, you know, you inherited. You made some good investments. Yeah. That's capital gains tax. Yep. Um, but the guy who is, who is, you know, I, I put it this way. You, <clears throat> you, you want to convince all the people with pitchforks that all the people with torches want to take their pitchforks away and you're done. And you don't realize that the whole reason that the pitchforks and the torches are out is for the guy in the castle who's eating the juicy steak and by the warm fire and doesn't give a fuck about you. Yep. Um, I mean, that's what I, I yeah, told Addison when I started this show. You know, like the first few guests I had, uh, Tarika and Mesa, you know, I love them to death, but we could, I'm not saying we couldn't be any more opposites political because there's a lot of things they believe in. You know, being a, a voluntarist libertarian, you know, I believe, you know, in, in decriminalizing drugs, I'm just, just like just like my friends on the left do. You know, I I believe in a lot of the things that the people on the left do. I believe a lot of a lot of the things people on the right, as far as next to no tax, as far as being able to own a firearm. So when I started this show, I wanted to be able to have them on as well as people like you, like Addison, who mm-hmm. have a different view. I'm not going to tell anybody they can't come on this show. Yeah. You know, even if they are some nut job, I'm going to give them a voice because I want them to be able to speak. As long as they're speaking and we can see them, we can keep an eye on them. Mm-hmm. Which I think it's been a big problem with deplatforming. Because when you say, well, this yeah. person, whether it be Alex Jones or, or whoever, um, when you push people of a certain political leaning out of your platform, they're going to go underground or they're going to go to a yeah. secure site where you can't see what they're doing. They're going to wind up on the daily stormer. You're going to call You're going to call them a white nationalist. They're going to go find white nationalists, see what's going on. Yeah. And they could probably get radicalized. Mm-hmm. Um, That's but, one of the big pushes right now, just speaking temper or contemporarily. Um, that's, I think, why we have such a um, 
a push in the media to call what happened on January 6th, the Capitol, a domestic terrorist event, you know, armed insurrection. There, and, and, and some people, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn when I say this, but I look at that, I read that headline, I see that being said by Anderson Cooper, and I think, oh, okay, not going to get me. I know what you want me to do is be outraged that you're calling me a domestic terrorist, right? And get me to go seek out other people who are actual domestic terrorists, who actually want to blow up federal buildings, who actually want to do this. Because they want to radicalize the other side. You know, it's, it's like it's like the guy who's the fucking douchebag, and he he knows what pushes your buttons, and he pushes those buttons and pushes those buttons and pushes those buttons until you take a swing at him, at him and he's like, whoa, bro, it was just a joke. What did you get all bent out of shape for? Right, yeah. No? It's all it's all okay as long as they're the one doing it, but the minute you strike back, you're the problem. Yeah. yeah. And that's what modern conspiracy theorists or at least contemporary conspiracy theorists and whether you're um, whether you're on the left side or the right side of the aisle and you're you're wedge issue ideologies um, that's something that's used against them because the social justice warriors right that that Trump derangement syndrome purple haired girl screaming in the street when Trump won has been used to the opposite effect mm. you know <clears throat> and has solidified a whole lot of that Trump derangement syndrome we've seen from people who lean left in the past four years uh, it's 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 Psychological operations, it's games on games on games of how to control people using their emotions and using what they want to believe to be true. You know, that, that us versus them painting the bad guy, like goes back to it, you know, goes back to that um, constantly. And so, yeah, they, they want to push this narrative that uh, straight white men, are, if you wear, if you're a straight white man and you wear a Hawaiian shirt, you're a boogaloo boy. I'm in trouble. You know, <laughs> that's all I'm wearing here this summer. <laughs> if you're a, you know, social justice warrior type, you know, feminist, you know, that you're seen as some sort of soy boy, um, pussy, cuck, who's, who's cuck. Yes. To paint these pictures. And it, no, it's really just, it's just individuals distilling down their experiences of life where they are currently and acting out the rage that they have against the system that they can't fight back against. They don't know how to fight back against. And they were never taught how to see it for what it is, which is a system of control. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 a, uh, it's a psyop. And, you know, I've, I've talked about on the podcast before on Gives Us Some Thought um, about how QAnon was a psyop. Mm. We've been saying that for a while. Um, and a lot of people in the conspiracy community believe that QAnon is a psyop, but not enough people believe in the conspiracy community and elsewhere believe that Russiagate and the Mueller investigation was also a psyop. It wasn't like, you know, you're convincing conservatives and people on the right that there's this guy, Q, who's secretly deep state working with Trump behind the scenes, doing the thing, the things in back channels that Trump can't do to drain the swamp and lock her up. And any day now, 
20,000, 100,000 sealed indictments, and we're all going to get all these Satanists, the cultists, baby rapists, and, and, and murder them in the streets. Yeah, that's, it went from 10,000 to 20,000 to 100,000 sealed indictments. Like every day they added more to it. Um, yeah. I, I think, um, I don't know if you're familiar with ARGs, augmented reality games. That they're, yep. they're, you know, they're big, yep. they're big on, on online. Yeah, and the, the, some of them are a lot of fun. Absolutely. The K, the K to 3301. Right. Um, the, the, there's yeah. one on Twitter. I haven't I been updated in a while. Uh, the day the sun went black. This is a Twitter thread. This guy, it was just an ARG is all it was. It was re- really, really well written, you know, if, if you're into that kind of stuff. It's almost like QAnon became an ARG that got way out of hand. People started yeah. believing it. And I was like, because I was like, okay, this is, this is, I thought it was an ARG when it first started, you know, just using real life things. But it was like almost so real people started buying into it and they started their own little groups and it became, it was like another outlet for people on, on the ride, you know, to, to get involved in something. And mm-hmm. it was like, they all, they bought into it so much, you know, they believed it was true. Yeah. And it's, it's scary when you have people in power who are feeding into it also. Yes. Um, uh, to just to circle back to what I was saying about the Mueller investigation is for Democrats and for those on the left, the Russiagate, you know, Trump is secretly a Putin agent and Mueller any day now, you know, Robert Mueller is going to drag Trump in before the, the Senate and try him as a war criminal any day now. Don't worry about it. We're, we're going to prove that Trump should be impeached and, and pulled out of office and that, that, you know, the 2016 election was rigged and, and he's been, I saw an article a couple weeks ago is Trump has been in Putin's pocket since he went to Moscow in the eighties to try and build a hotel. Right. And the still dossier. You know, and the steel dossier. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> and what, what it was, it was just a, a, the same as QAnon, but on the left, it was just a LARP to make you think that, hey, any day now, your heroes on your side of the aisle are going to ride in on white horses and save the day and make everything perfect and everyone will get a pony. Right. You know? Um, but, you know, talking about the, uh, I think I, I lost, lost my place, the ARG... Um, uh, what was the last thing you, you the last few words you said? I, I said Before I, I, went I, I think I think that that QAnon was an ARG. Um, that was I've got my own theories about what happened with QAnon. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was an ARG, a, a pseudo ARG, as in it was kind of put out there to see if it would get any traction. Yeah. And it started being written as it as it got more traction. It started to be written as more truth, and then people got mm-hmm. on, and people people got involved in it. Where Q quote unquote Q didn't have to post as much because people were digging so much into the previous post. They were taking yeah. care of it. They're, they're, they were doing it themselves. They were they mm-hmm. were ARGing themselves. It became fanfic almost. Yes, yes. So that was that was what I was going to lead into. Is that you know, um, you have the Old Testament, you have the Gospels that get written, and 800 years later, they're selling indulgences mm. and saying that Jews are subhuman, you know, right. and, and 
we have to kill them, and the Jews eat babies, and all this other stuff. It's true, but, you know. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, but, 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 but looking for evil, and then you, all, you have all this, this extemporaneous bullshit that's built up around the Catholic Church that has nothing to do with Scripture or what Jesus actually taught right. or what the Bible is actually trying to tell you. Um, or what the Gnostics believe, or 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 anything like that. Um, it's 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 it goes from being okay. We have our gospel, and we have our truth here, and this is what we think about the world, and theorize about the world, and how things are. And now we're going to add to it and build our own lore around it. It becomes more tradition. Than <laughs> it becomes more tradition than actually worshiping the deity. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you have you know. My favorite, and I, I follow this Telegram channel, and it's supposedly JFK Jr., Okay, who famously died in 1999. You got my interest peaked. Go right ahead. Uh, yeah, it's supposedly JFK Jr., who is the real vice president of the United States right now, mm. um, from the White House in Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Okay. And tomorrow, actually, on March 4th, is when they will start the three-day operation from the March 4th, 5th, and 6th, um, and we will see the military takeover of Washington, D.C., and uh, Washington, D.C. will be um, um, will be invalidated as the actual capital and will go back to the Constitution in 1871, because in 1871, the United States Constitution was undermined and the United States became a corporation um, and the Constitution has not applied really since then. It's just uh, a farce that they're keeping up. And so JFK never really died. He just went into hiding in 1999. JFK and Jr. And now, yeah, JFK Jr., yeah. <clears throat> and um, Donald Trump is still the active president, and we're going to see it all just tomorrow. Just you wait, just tomorrow. 20,000 field indictments. It's going to happen tomorrow. The sun will come out tomorrow. That's your bottom dollar. Uh, and but there's still people. There's there's almost two hundred thousand people subscribed subscribe to this channel. Good God! And I know that most of them aren't the people who are like me. Is I like to I like to keep tabs on what's going on. So you know I'm uh, I'm on Reddit a lot, and so you know I'm subscribed to our conspiracy, but I'm also subscribed to our collapse, which is a huge subreddit focused on climate change and espousing leftist ID ideologies and build back better and all this other stuff. And, you know, against hate subreddits and, you know, both the left and the right, because I, I want to know, I need to know what everybody's thinking about the situation. Um, but yeah, there's, there's still people who, who believe that Donald Trump wasn't just an actor playing the bad guy to incite more, um, a greater divide between the left and the right and to keep, you know, the people with the pitchforks fighting the people with the torches, uh, which I firmly believe he was. Um, So yeah, there's, there's that element of, of people out there who are still buying into it and hoping beyond hope because they've been so disillusioned with um, the narrative that they can no longer they, they no longer want to see the world as it is. They are holding on to hope. Just like the people who are holding on to 
let's impeach Donald Trump again while he's out of office so he can never run for office again. You know, let's now now it's let's dig into his tax records. But yeah, I'm sorry, he was just the guy to come along and play a role to to make everybody hate each other. Yeah. You know, in in the final <clears throat> act of the the robbing of wealth of the middle class of America, which is what we're in right now. I think some, I heard um, someone that, say one time that that it, I'm not sure if I truly if I truly agree, but it was a damn good breakdown that the reason why so many people on the right who are typically you know people from my area, the South, mm-hmm. um, they clung to Trump because which blew my mind that he got so much traction in the South as as most of the older generation view people from north of the Mason-Dixon line as a bunch of city slickers and you can't trust them and what mm-hmm. they what, what they have what they have done you know they came down here and set up factories for cheap labor and we gave it to them um a lot of people have said that the reason why people in people in the south or in the red red areas cling to him so much is because they believe they can never be as smart as some politicians, but if they work hard enough, they can be as rich as some politicians. Mm-hmm. And so it was like he shined the light saying, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I've got a lot of money and you can too. Yeah. It was almost like he was yeah. selling his own pyramid scheme to, <laughs> to America, which he's done mm-hmm. a couple times in his own, in his own yeah. business. Um, yeah. That what really shocked me. I was blown away that that people in my area clung to Trump because I mean he would cuss on the campaign trail he'd cuss he would you know and, and he he wasn't evangelical in the least at all yeah he'd been divorced a couple times had children with three different women or two different women whatever it was um and they chose that man over some evangelical you know church going candidates it, it kind of threw mm-hmm. me for a loop i never saw it coming yeah and i don't know if it was roger stone doing what he does as far as stirring up bullshit or if it was just trump i'm not a fan of trump you know that but the the man can pull a rally yeah that that's where he it was um it to, to me what my opinion on what trump was was uh people on the right and conservatives um, and I mentioned this before, before about the soy boy pussy trope of painting everybody who is a Democrat as a pussy, as a limp dick, effeminate, you know, um, debutante who, who doesn't really know what, what, what reality is. And um, Donald Trump was the alpha, you know, Donald Trump married the centerfold and he had a, you know, um, he was tall, he was big, uh, he had a billion dollars, billions of dollars. You know, he had a golden toilet he shat in. Right. You know, uh, it was it was the uh, machismo. It was it was this alpha image. He was and selling a lifestyle that, that is famous to average Americans. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like you said before about you know people believing that all you have to do is work hard and you can get a billion dollars. No, you can work hard and get a million dollars maybe hang on to it 
But if you want to get a billion dollars, you have to be the kind of person who will fuck somebody over at the drop of a hat, no matter who they are. Right. Um, and I, uh, this is my own personal theory, but I don't think that you can get a billion dollars in today's day and age. I don't think you can truly become wealthy. And I'm not talking rich. I'm talking wealthy without being a, a psychopath. Or just have, uh, have no the, moral code in business. I mean, yes, you might get, yes. you might get fuck you money, but you won't get fuck me money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, without being the type of person who is, who's willing to do, um, just deplorable, immoral things, willing to set aside their moral code. And I think that's what politics has been for over a hundred years is that it's, it's a, like Carlin said, it's a big club and you're not in it. Right. If you want to get in that club, the price is compromise. No matter what form that compromise takes, it's compromise. Whether it's cheating on your taxes or using, you know, government money for the lease on your car up into, you know, the deep, dark QAnon stuff that they theorize about, you know. Um, compromise, you know, if you want to rise above the state level or even just the municipal local level in politics, you have to compromise. And the people who you see on stage waving to you at the DNC or at the RNC or from the White House, um, they are compromised yep. and they have been for a while. Um, and I think fame does that to you, uh, full stop, is in order to become famous um, in a diseased, sick society, in a diseased, sick, sick culture, um, you know, to rise to the top, that, that requires you to be diseased and sick yourself. And it's not 100% the case, um, but it is overwhelmingly the case for 99% of the people who are celebrities or in positions of power or extremely wealthy. Um, and that, you know, that's enough, you know, you can have, you know, the Ron Pauls or, you know, of the world who can get to the national state or, you know, even like Bernie Sanders who can get to a national stage, which I like Bernie Sanders. I, I, I was, when he kind of became a thing, I was like, Oh, Hey, let me look into this guy. Damn. This guy, I don't agree with the policies, and I think that they're bad policies, but you know what? He, for 40 years, has basically kept on message, and no one's been able yeah. to get him off of his message. He stuck to his guns without a day. I mean, mm -hmm. You could say you don't agree with his policy. You can say that that uh, things he's done has not, been, has not lined up with your own personal political standings, but the, mm -hmm. the man has... Just like you said, just like Ron Paul, the man has stuck by his message, whether it be good or bad yep. in your eyes. He he is not he is not a. Um, I lost my train of thought. He's not. Um, he's not compromised. No, he's, he's not he's compromised. Not too, not too faced. You know, right where yeah. he stands on what he does. Yeah, and he yeah he's going to wear the same the same coat for <laughs> you know two two years. Right. You know, the Biden inauguration stuff was, um, people made fun of him. He became a meme, you know, him sitting there with his mittens crossed across his legs. Uh, but I, I saw that, I saw the image of, of this guy who, he, he has to show up, he has to support, or well, he has to show, at least show support 
but he is not having a good time. Oh no, he is not happy at all with what's going on right now. I mean, for two for eight years, two different campaigns, he got totally shit on by the DNC. Mm-hmm. He had a ton, a ton of of true grassroots support, whether you agree with it or not. The people came out in droves to support that man. Yep. And yep. The, the minute he got any traction whatsoever, Clinton did it in his first run. Just she she had the DNC in her pocket. I don't care what anybody says. Mm-hmm. It, it's out there. There's plenty of proof of it. Yep. And and she had him ran down. And then this mm-hmm. next time he had wide open support again. And in the, in the, in the Iowa caucus that first night. They did everything they could to discredit the people who were, who were caucusing for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really, what we we see with Bernie Sanders is what happened to Ron Paul yes. in two thousand and eight and two thousand twelve, which because he was you know he was a candidate in two thousand eight when for the um, the nomination, and I caucused for him in two thousand twelve. You know, I went to, you know, I was a delegate. I went to you know the high local high school in St. Charles on a Tuesday. And there was me and like a thousand other people in this auditorium uh, over the basketball court. And um, one of my friends got arrested because he refused to stop recording, which was totally legal in the caucus. But St. Charles County was going to go for Ron Paul. St. Louis County was going to go for Romney. Um, And uh, St. Charles County and every single other little county in. Missouri was going to go for Ron Paul. They had Casey and St. Louis County on lock for Romney, but they didn't, without St. Charles, it's not enough to overcome the rest of the counties of the state as far as delegates go. So they had to pull shenanigans. And I watched in real time as, as they subverted Robert's rules of order. They didn't follow the correct protocols. They didn't do the proper roll call and counting of delegates. Um, and they didn't allow people to um, call into question um, the proceedings and how they were going, the procedural, how they were going about things. And it ended in a fiasco where the cops were called in and there were, there was uh, basically people booing and yelling, hey, that's not how you're supposed to do that, that. Like, let's, let's go back to proper protocols and the rules of how we're going to call this quorum. And the, the head of the Republican Party in St. Charles County um, like, looked at a guy, gave him a hand signal, and within, I'm, I'm, I'm serious, two minutes, there were 40 cops Jesus on that ba- basketball court. Good God. Like, they, were, they were ready. And they arrested a friend of mine uh, because he wouldn't stop recording with his camcorder. Um, they arrested another guy who was the head of the Libertarian Party of St. Charles County who stood outside after that everybody had been basically been made to leave the auditorium, who stood outside with a bullhorn and was like and spelling out exactly what they were doing to rig this for Romney. And they pulled him down off the crate he was standing on, grabbed the bullhorn and threw him in jail. And released him a couple hours later, but still. So that state, the state of Missouri, would have gone for Ron Paul in the caucus if he, if proper procedure would have been followed in St. Charles County. And that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Yeah. 
I can't recall if Ross Perot won a state in in 1992. I don't think he I don't did. Think he did. But he had a he had a lot of support behind him. He's the reason why Bill Clinton won. Absolutely. Because he got up on national TV with a a, a marker and a whiteboard and was giving people numbers, spelling things out, like telling them, here's the facts, here's how it doesn't add up, here's how it does add up, here's the corruption, and people identified with it. And Ron Paul, in, in, in his own way, did the same thing, and Bernie Sanders did the same thing. But, you know, you can't have somebody telling the masses the truth, and it was definitely rigged against Ron Paul in 2012 and 16 and 2020 against Bernie because you know, they're on the outside and be, because they never had the comp, they had enough of a field, enough of a support in their constituents, constituents that they could get reelected every cycle to the Senate or wherever and not have to be compromised by Washington money. Right. And those people are very dangerous, you know? Um, yeah. yeah I, and and it, it's anytime, sorry. anytime the, uh, any time in any party, really, um, that you've got enough money and enough, not just money, just you have enough true grassroots support, not, not AstroTurf stuff, but true grassroots support where you don't need to be financed by the party. The party is not going to let it happen. Mm-hmm. It is not yeah. going to happen. Yep. Because they, they want to pull the strings on every single candidate they have with that R or that D next to their name. Mm-hmm. And like said, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing because it's then it's not, it's not the true, it's not a true democracy selecting their candidate. It turns into kind of like, um, it's kind of like, um, what's the show? The singing show. What is it? Um, Glee. No, not Glee. The, the competition. What am I thinking of? Oh, um, oh, shit. The one people text in to vote or whatever. God, what's the, the voice? The voice? The voice. Yes, sort of. Uh, I'm thinking about like the American Got Talent. The, the original one. Kelly Clarkson OG. Yeah, right? the, that's what I'm trying to think of. I don't yeah. know how it blank on this. Um, if you look at the end of the show in, in the uh, in the credits or the end of it, it says, you know, the producers have the right to select who they who they actually mm-hmm. want. Um, yeah. if, if they ever did it or not, I don't know. That's pretty much what it's doing with, with, with politics. Uh, you can vote, but in, in the end, the producers, AKA the party, they're going to, they're going to they're pick who they want on, on the stage. Mm-hmm. Just, like, just like on the back of, uh, if you get a ticket for a football game or a baseball game, you know, in the major sports, uh, you know, you read the fine print on the back of your ticket. It says this is this, you bought this ticket for, uh, entertainment purposes only. And the outcomes of the game necessarily don't have to reflect what has happened on the field. Oh yeah. Yep. Uh, so they give themselves an out, you know. So they, you know, and they do that in, with our they do that with our circuses. Why wouldn't they do that with our politics? Yeah. Right. It's very true. Um, another thing that kind of opened my eyes, and this was um, actually John Oliver from probably four years ago, back when I was watching John Oliver, because like I said, you know, I, I was. Um, used to be a leftist, used to be somebody who would identify as a Democrat, or at least uh, a liberal. Uh, so, you know, John Stewart, John Oliver, uh, I enjoyed those guys. John Oliver got to be the, to the point of, 
he wasn't funny anymore, so I stopped watching him. But one of the first uh, episodes he did when he got a show on HBO was about freshman uh, um, freshman representatives in the, in the House, right? And what they do. So when you get elected as a freshman representative in the House of Representatives, which usually, if you're a fresh, you know, usually it means somebody else gave up their seat for some reason, and so you were just kind of you got to walk it in and win. And you don't spend your time reading bills or on the floor of the, the Senate. What you do is you're put into a building about six or seven blocks away from the Capitol with a little office, and you make phone calls all day raising money for the DNC. You're a telemarketer. That's what it boils down to. You're in a yep. call center. Yep. And if you don't do that, they tell you in four years when you're up for election, you won't have any money. You're on your own. So either you play our game uh, or you don't get, you know, we're not going to let you play the next time we decide who gets to play again. Yeah. And that's what the, there is the compromise becomes, you know, there are exceptions like, um, you know, AOC who has a big presence. So, she, you know, but, but what she does is no different than the, those, those no name U S reps who are basically telemarketers. She she's a she's a telemarketer, but not on the phone. She's on social media. She's, on she's Twitch. making appearances on CNN. She raises money yeah. on Twitch. Yeah, streaming video games. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is the new telemarketing. It's, yeah, it's the same. It's the same thing. Is, is that you don't get to have any actual influence over in the system until you have proven that you are a part of the system. Right. That you're a good little. That you're a good little player. That you will go along to get along. And until you prove that your ultimate interest is for yourself. Mm. Yeah. Not for your constituents. And I think that's what, yeah, not for your that's, state. Yep. It's, it's, it's for yep. yourself. Yep. And if you are only out for yourself, then it's very easy to compromise you. Um, cause you'll fuck over whoever. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's my take on politics. I I, uh, I I agree. I mean, ninety eight percent of the way, I, I I agree with you. Um, and I I still love it though. I I still love the it's, debate, it's, even though <laughs> even though politics is theater for the ugly. You know, it's Hollywood <laughs> for people who don't look good on screen. Yeah, who don't pop. Um, I I, I do still enjoy it because it used to mean something. You know, um, it's it's sad. It it really doesn't anymore. Um, it's, but, it's, it's like you know. like you just it's like our own personal circus now. It's our it's our, it's our sports. You know, yeah. It's who's going to get traded to who, and who's back and who, and who's going to cross the line, and who's going to do this, who's going to do that. Um, mm-hmm. It becomes almost like a soap opera sometimes. And again, it's just yeah. it's just it's become entertainment more than actual policy. Uh, you know, now we have we've had presidents the last well ever since I was around, I guess. But we have had presidents who they will sign more executive orders than than bills that have come come through. So why do we even need the House and the Senate anymore when they can just sign something mm-hmm. in, in in they can they can if if they have somebody up for um, a nomination and Congress goes on vacation, they can pass that person themselves. There's really no reason to have a confirmation anymore. Um, yeah. So, well, Matt, it's been over two hours now. 
Oh, yes, I guess it has. <laughs> I ain't trying to rush you or anything. Uh, but you, you got anything you want to plug the show? Uh, no, I just, um, uh, one final thought though. On, we could talk for the past hour about conspiracy theories. And, um, it, it seems as, we, as the past hour has gone on and on and on. It's gotten more and more despairing. Dystopia. <laughs> one more. Everything's fucked. We can't do bullshit. Or we can't do shit about shit. Um, and I think that's wrong. Even though we've, you know, we've laid out basically how um, Washington is corrupt and politics and voting doesn't really matter. Uh, that's not something that's new in in humanity. Uh, I've said it. I've said it many times. The king will rule, and the poor will toil. Uh, that's an old U two lyric. Um, from one of the only songs that The Edge ever sings for you 2 um, It's a great song called Van Diemen's Land, which is, talks about Australia. And the king will rule and the poor will toil. That's how it's been since one monkey convinced the other monkey that his bananas were worth more. Mm. Um, and be, be looking, looking at that, it might seem like it's, despairing but it's it's not i think I, I think it's something you can you can get a lot of hope out of because the powers that be evil will always be in the world and um somebody i really like gordon white says using a lord of the rings reference he was says he says that no one in the lord of the rings ever fights sauron yes nobody you mentioned that on the show before that that really struck a chord with me by the way that's very true it is no, that's one of my favorite stories ever. No one ever fights Sauron. What do they do? It's normal, average people doing their best and not giving up hope. It's normal, average people and doing not, extraordinary things. That they, yes. they've met their challenge. And, yes, and helping the people around them. Yes, be more than what they are by themselves. Mm. And we don't ever get to fight Sauron. We don't ever get to expose Hollywood, or Hollywood corruption or you know, Washington corruption, and the swamp will never be drained. But what we can do is, with our dying breath, cast that ring into the fire. We can be the Samwise Gamgee who never gives up and is always there for Frodo. We can be the Aragorn who has a lot of responsibility put on him and doesn't know if he can do it, but ultimately does it because he doesn't want to let people down. We can be a Legolas or a Gimli who is not on board with what's happening, but because of the friendships that we've made, we're never going to fucking give up. Yes. And we're going to carry that ball across the finish line. Um, you know, and even like a tragic character like Boromir who gets, uh, gives in to, to the ring, but then doesn't at the last second. And realizes that what he's fighting for is for uh, not for power. What he's fighting for is his people. Um, and that's looking into the, the deep, dark, brown eye of conspiracy. I think that that is the that's the narrative that I've clung to and that I've chosen to believe 
is that evil has always been with us and will always be with us, and we can never we never get to fight Sauron, but we can do our bit where we are the best we can and love and encourage people around us and teach Lacey how to clean chickens. <laughs> I could not have thought of, be- of about a better way than end this show with, yes, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, Matt, thanks for and, coming on. I really, and, go, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. No, that, that's just what we can do because we're not superheroes. We're, we're just, we're just people who can love in ways that the billionaire politicians can't do anymore. Yeah. They've forgotten it. And that power is deeper and greater. That's the old magic mm. that they forgot. Yeah. Well, Matt, thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate you. Uh, you're yes, welcome. I want to have you on again sometime. I, I want to get into, um, God, we could go for another two hours probably on, on, uh, views on religion for sure. I want to get you in here because you, you, you kind of, uh, not, again, another same a shared experience growing up, but also kind of the, yep. the, the path we've taken now that we've gotten, gotten older. Uh, be sure to go by tripod broadcasting to check out Matt and Addison's show. Give that some thought. Uh, you can also check out Rick and the guys over at Barnhill outdoors. Listen to Aaron's show. I have the high ground just his star Wars podcast. Also, be sure to go by ebles.com, E-A-B-L-E-S, and uh, save 15% with the promo code HANGO on some premium CBD. Also, check out mydelta8.com. Again, Matt, thanks a whole lot, man. I really appreciate you. Love you, brother. Love you too, man. Love all y'all out there. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a good evening. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.